0: Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World, with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. There is something uneasy in the Los Angeles air this afternoon. Some unnatural stillness, some tension. What it means is that tonight a Santa Ana will begin to blow. A hot wind from the northeast winding down through the Cajon and San Gorgonio Passes, blowing up sandstorms out along Route 66, drying the hills and the nerves to the flashpoint. For a few days now, we will see smoke back in the canyons and hear sirens in the night. I have neither heard nor read that a Santa Ana is due, but I know it. And almost everyone I have seen today knows it too. We know it because we feel it. The baby frets, the maid sulks. I rekindle a waning argument with the telephone company, then cut my losses and lie down given over to whatever is in the air. To live with the Santa Ana is to accept, consciously or unconsciously, a deeply mechanistic view of human behavior. I recall being told, when I first moved to Los Angeles and was living on an isolated beach, that the Indians would throw themselves into the sea when the bad wind blew. I could see why. The Pacific turned ominously glossy during a Santa Ana period. And one woke in the night, troubled not only by the peacocks screaming in the olive trees, but by the eerie absence of surf. The heat was surreal. The sky had a yellow cast, the kind of light sometimes called earthquake weather. My only neighbor would not come out of her house for days, and there were no lights at night, and her husband roamed the place with a machete. One day he would tell me that he had heard a trespasser, the next, a rattlesnake. On nights like that, Raymond Chandler once wrote about the Santa Ana. Every booze party ends in a fight. Meek little wives feel the edge of the carving knife and study their husbands' necks. Anything can happen. That was the kind of wind it was. I did not know then that there was any basis for the effect it had on all of us, But it turns out to be another one of those cases in which science bears out folk wisdom. The Santa Ana, which is named for one of the canyons it rushes through, is a fawn wind, like the fawn of Austria and Switzerland and the Hamsin of Israel. There are a number of persistent malevolent winds, perhaps the best known of which are the Mistral in France and the Mediterranean Sirocco. But a fawn has distinct characteristics. It occurs on the leeward slope of a mountain range, and, although the air begins as a cold mass, it is warmed as it comes down the mountain, and appears finally as a hot, dry wind. Whenever and wherever a fawn blows, doctors hear about headaches, and nausea, and allergies, about nervousness, about depression. In Los Angeles, some teachers do not attempt to conduct formal classes during a Santa Ana because the children become unmanageable. In Switzerland, the suicide rate goes up during the fun, And in the courts of some Swiss cantons, the wind is considered a mitigating circumstance for crime. Surgeons are said to watch the wind because blood does not clot normally during a fun. A few years ago an Israeli physicist discovered that not only during such winds but for the 10 or 12 hours which precede them, the air carries an unusually high ratio of positive to negative ions. No one seems to know exactly why that should be. Some talk about friction, and others suggest solar disturbances. In any case, the positive ions are there. And what an excess of positive ions does, in the simplest terms, is make people unhappy. One cannot get much more mechanistic than that. It is hard for people who have not lived in Los Angeles to realize how radically the Santa Ana figures in the local imagination. The city burning is Los Angeles' deepest image of itself. Nathaniel West perceived that in the Day of the Locust. And at the time of the 1965 Watts riots, what struck the imagination most indelibly were the fires. For days, one could drive the harbor freeway and see the city on fire, just as we had always known it would be in the end. Los Angeles weather is the weather of catastrophe, of apocalypse. And just as the reliably long and bitter winters of New England determine the way life is lived there, so the violence and the unpredictability of the Santa Ana affect the entire quality of life in Los Angeles, accentuate its impermanence its unreliability. The wind shows us how close to the edge we are. And that, of course, is an excerpt from Joan Didion's Slouching Towards Bethlehem, an essay called Los Angeles Notebook. And that has been some of my favorite writing for quite some time. Joan Didion has been in my life for... As long as I can remember, my mother was obsessed with Joan Didion. So much that, or is obsessed rather. <laughs> so much so that her, her dog is actually named Didion. And I think when I was young and I read that for the first time, what struck me so much Aside from the fact that she actually talks about the scientific nature of how the Santa Ana's affect us, um, what struck me when I first read it was how real that felt. The connection between the weather and our mood, or the cosmos and our psyche. And I knew nothing of astrology, or really spirituality, or anything like that at the time. But there was something just so raw and potent about her description of the Santa Ana's. And when I moved to California from New York five years ago, I was amazed at how accurate and on-point her writing is for this type of an experience. And so I am sitting in a hotel. It is Thursday... November 15th, I believe. It's hard to keep track of the days these days. But I'm sitting in a hotel and it's day seven of having been evacuated from my home. We were all told we, being Topanga, were under mandatory evacuation since Friday afternoon. And it's been quite an experience, to say the least. I feel extremely grateful that my home is okay, and all of Topanga is okay, and the reason that we've been evacuated for this long has been moderately confusing and unclear. But I have tried not to focus on the details of that, at least not after the first couple days. And I've tried to just really reflect on the nature of all of this and the lessons that are here for me to learn. And the lessons that seem to be on the table for everyone to learn who who have been in this situation alongside me. But before I jump into the lessons I've learned and the insight that I've gained over the past week, I figured I would just tell you the story. And it's funny because when I first thought about should I record an episode about this, it seems a little overdramatic especially because my home is okay and so many people that I know have lost everything. And so is it really fair for me to provide insight around the situation when I wasn't affected to the degree that some other people were? But I asked you all if you wanted to hear about my (laughs) experience and my insights and the resounding answer was yes. And, And I do have I do have a lot to share, and I think even though I didn't experience the worst of it, thank goodness, I do think it's our responsibility in these situations, regardless of how we are affected or impacted, to really think critically about what it was that we personally were, were being asked to reflect on. And so I figured I would share what I got from this, and maybe it will help you guys start to think about these things too. And so Friday morning I woke up and the power was out. And this happens from time to time in Topanga. It had just actually gone out less than a week ago. And normally I drive down the street or walk down the street and there's some crew working on the lines, and I ask what it is that they're doing. And normally they say, Oh, we're, you know, just fixing something and we'll be done around two thirty or so. So When it happened again, and the problem with living in Topanga, or not the problem, I actually quite enjoy it, but one of the issues is that there's no cell phone service, and so the way that I get cell phone service is through my Wi-Fi, but when the power's out, there's no Wi-Fi, and therefore I have no cell phone service, and I don't have a landline, and I don't really have any other way of connecting to the outside world. So it's a little bit frustrating when this happens, because there's not really any real way for me to get information about what's going on. And I knew there had been a fire that had started the night prior, but... As far as I knew, it was quite far away from me, and I've lived in Southern California now enough where I know a lot of fires happen all the time, and for the vast majority of them, they get them under control pretty quickly. And so I woke up Friday morning, and I had no power, and really the last thing that I thought was that it was fire-related, but I showered, and I got my car, and I figured I would just go to the local coffee shop to work while they fixed the power. And I drive down my street and immediately getting to the end of the street (laughs) and I look to the right, to the west, and there's a huge, huge plume of smoke. And it looks kind of crazier than anything that I've seen, at least from my street since I've lived here. But I thought, it still seems pretty far away. And could it really get that out of control? And does that have something to do with the power So I kept going. I drove into town, but I realized that when I got into town, I still didn't have any cell phone service. And that normally doesn't happen. Once I get to the town of Topanga, the service kicks back in. But there was no service. So I drove up to the cafe that I was going to go to. And in the parking lot was a guy that works at the cafe who I recognized. And another guy, we'll call him wealthy Malibu Malibu man. Uh, He was in the car in a car in the parking lot talking to the guy that worked at the cafe everyone was standing outside and i figured i want to find out some i want to find out some information i wonder if they have any so i pulled into the parking lot and i got out of my car and i asked them if they knew what was going on and wealthy malibu man pulled out his cell phone and said oh yeah you know the fire is is kind of extreme it's it's traveled quite a bit and i think that they probably turned off the power as to prevent some sort of You know, emergency in which power lines would catch fire. And he pulled out his phone and he showed us some pictures of the fire from a view he'd gotten closer up. And he said, Oh, yeah, if you just continue to drive up the road into the valley, you'll get service. And I made a comment as we were all standing there talking, like, you know, it's so fascinating when something like this happens, when you realize how dependent we are on technology. And on cell phone service. And on power. And on resources that at the end of the day, we really have no control over. And so I made this comment, and wealthy Malibu man said, Yeah, you know, it forces you to actually engage and talk to people face to face. And I think about the end of the world, obviously. (laughs) Or at least the future of the world. I do have a podcast about saving the world, so... Clearly, there's an idea in my head that it needs to be saved from something. And so I think about these types of situations a lot. I think about what it would be like if we didn't have the resources that we have. What it be, what would it be like if we had to fend for ourselves? And I don't think this is apocalyptic or unreasonable. And I think situations like I just went through make it abundantly clear that it's quite easy for us to be stuck in a situation in which... We have no control. And so when he said this, it made a lot of sense to me because, of course, just me talking to these two people in the parking lot for as long as I did was something that rarely happened, talking to strangers in this way. And then, as if right out of a movie, another person pulled up. And it was a guy. And he got out of his car and he was clearly upset and not local. And confused about what was going on. And he got out of his car and he walked over to all of us. At this point, the group is maybe four. And he said, do you guys know where there's a bed and breakfast? And none of us really knew what he was talking about. He said, you know, there's a bed and breakfast and it's somewhere in Topanga and it's nice. And we all didn't know. (laughs) And wealthy Malibu man... uh seemed to know more than the rest of us and suggested a couple places and asked the guy, well, do you know the name of it? And he said, no, I don't remember the name of it. And I, and the guy, wealthy Malibu man in the car said, well, I'm not Expedia, I'm sorry, I I don't know. And the guy who was asking the question got extremely irritated and started cursing the guy in the car out, Re- wealthy Malibu man. Go oh, fuck you, I'm a fucking Expedia, why do you have to be a fucking dick? I just want to find this place. Fucking asshole. He threw his hands up and he walked away. And it was hard not to think in that situation in which I just had a very positive and then also a very negative experience of what happens when humans are under stress and out of control. And it was pretty easy for my mind to immediately go to, okay, so this is the future. And we actually have no resources and we actually are panicking and maybe people are dying And desperate and hungry. And instead of this guy throwing his hands up and cursing the guy in the car out, he would take out his gun, and he would shoot him, and he would take all his food and resources. I mean, that is what happens. We've seen this historically, scientifically, when humans are put in these types of situations, that they react in one of two ways, or both, depending on the circumstance. And so I got back in my car and I drove up to the valley, and I just kind of sat there in shock trying to digest everything. And should I go back to my house and gather my things? Was I in danger? This fire was in Malibu, which is a little ways away from me, but still a, a uncomfortably close, the next largest city over from Topanga. But I knew that if I went back to my house because there was no power and no cell phone service, I wouldn't be able to get any information. But one thing was clear. My initial intuition was that I was going to be okay and that my home was going to be okay. But there was a message here to learn. And there were thoughts that needed to be thought about. And that I was supposed to think about them. (laughs) And so I decided to drive home. And I ran into my neighbors. And... One of them said that he had started the power generator for a neighbor down the street and that she was able to get access to the TV and that he would come up and let me know if the fire got so bad that we had to evacuate. Because at the time, of course I went and bought one, but at the time I didn't have an AM radio. I didn't have any way. I didn't have a a satellite Wi-Fi box, all of which have been purchased after this apocalyptic practice session (laughs) anyway i didn't have any way of getting in touch with anybody so i touched base with the neighbors in person and myself and the neighbor and her young kid we all sat on the bench on our street and watched the smoke continue to get larger and larger and larger and it didn't really seem like it was coming closer to us but it certainly was growing and it seemed pretty ominous But we still had no way of getting in touch with anyone. And at the end of the day, I was feeling quite restless. And so I decided to grab a few things under the assumption that I'd be back. But just in case I was going to grab the most important items that I could grab within the course of five minutes and put them in my car. And I was going to go get more information and then I was going to come back. And this was the first of two times that I had the opportunity to pack up my things. And the first time, again, assuming that I'd be back for the most part, I really didn't take much. And I thought critically about it at the time, about what the hell am I supposed to take right now? And I knew the passports and the important documents. And I took my laptop, but I left my desktop computer. I took a few items of clothing, but left the rest. Really just none of it seemed important. And in a situation where you're supposed to take what you want to take to bring with you, it just became so apparent in that situation that none of that stuff mattered. And that I'd be fine without all of it. I didn't even take any photos or personal sentimental items that first round. So I left and I went to REI and I bought an AM radio. And I decided I was going to get some food and that then I would probably go home. But as I'm standing in line to get food, I pull up my phone and I see that Topango is under mandatory evacuation. And then the panic set in. (laughs) Because if we were under mandatory evacuation, that meant we were in danger and our homes were in danger. And I was watching and listening to this fire which had started so far from me, traveled so many miles in such a short period of time. And I was dreading what this meant for Topanga and my home. And I started to get all sorts of flashbacks to the only recurring dreams I had as a kid were fires. And I couldn't believe that after all that I'd been through over the past couple of years that, oh, this is all going to end my house burning down. What a lovely gift. And it freaked me out. And it freaked me out because I really didn't take much with me that first time. I would have lost pretty much everything that was of any importance to me. Obviously, I'd have my life. And that seemed to be the most important, without a doubt. But it was hard. And I sat in my car for probably two to three hours and just cried. And I called the people that I loved. And I talked to them for a bit. And I just cried. And I grieved the possibility of losing all of those things and what that would mean. And it felt great. (laughs) It felt great to to really kind of energetically let all of that go and think, well, if this happens, it happens. There's really nothing I can do about it. And so I might as well just let it go. And so that was challenging. But I sat there for a number of hours and did my best to just feel all of the feelings associated with all of this. And I checked into a hotel, which thankfully I could find. I had a lot of offers from people to stay with them, but I felt really strongly that I wanted to be by myself. I tend to take care of other people as a general rule, and I knew that I was the person that needed taking taking care of in this situation, and so I wanted to be able to do that for myself and only have to manage my own energy. And so I checked into a hotel, which thankfully I have a lot of hotel points, <laughs> so I haven't had to spend my life savings. Um, and I just, you know, obsessively checked wind reports and police reports and police scanner Twitter accounts, and I hope for the best. And the next morning I woke up, and the winds had died down a bit. I was heard that they were, I heard that they were going to pick up again, but at least on Saturday they died down a bit. And I decided maybe I would try to get back into the canyon and see if they let me in so that I could collect some more of my things. And so that's what I did. And for that brief period of time, it's been on and off this whole week, but for that brief period of time I was let back into the canyon and I went and grabbed my stuff. And that was another interesting experience because here I really was tasked with, okay... It's a real possibility that my house could burn down now. Let's really make these decisions. And so I did. And I I took everything that had any sort of significant meaning to me and anything that had a lot of monetary value. And all of those things easily fit into my small car. And that was such a moment for me. And and of course there were things that I left behind that would have to be replaced if I lost them, but they could be replaced. I had taken everything that I felt couldn't be replaced, and even some things that could, like all of my books, because hashtag priorities. But it was such an amazing lesson for me in that moment of thinking, I could just put all this stuff in my car and leave this state and never come back, and I'd be fine. could replace all of that stuff, or not. Mm -hmm. Who needs it? So that was a moment. Um, And so I left again for the second time, thinking it might be for the last. I took pictures of my place inside and out, both for nostalgic and insurance purposes. And at that point, everyone had left. My neighbors were gone. Their chickens were gone. Everyone was gone. It was a smoky ghost town. And I used the opportunity while I was in the canyon to just get a little bit closer to trying to figure out where the border of this fire was. And didn't get close enough to cause any trouble or get in the way of any sort of emergency teams. But I did just kind of drive through the area a bit and I drove down the PCH. And going back to how Joan Didion describes Los Angeles weather, I mean, there was, it was nothing short of apocalyptic. It has been nothing short of apocalyptic all week, actually. And of course, hearing about the terrible Northern California wildfires that happened simultaneously, it's a scary thought. And I couldn't help also. But think about a book I read this summer called The Great Bay by Dale Pendle. And in a really beautifully told, written uh, way, through mostly first-person narratives, he tells the sort of science fiction version of what might happen to California in the future. And I believe he wrote the book in 2010, and the story begins in 2020, 2021. And it's about... How California changes after an event that he calls the Great Collapse. And I figured I would read you guys a little portion of it because when I read it this summer, I mean, the whole book, it was, it was honestly very hard for me to sort out what was my actual reality and what was the reality of this book because it was that uncanny in terms of its similarities, and, and it seemed so realistic for how our world could look in the future. And so the premise of the book is tracking California, I think, oh gosh, 200,000 200, years into the future, 75,000 years, some ridiculous amount of time, but tracks the social evolution and the environmental evolution of the state of California, and predicts that the, a great bay forms in the Great Basin of California, between the two mountain ranges. And if you just kind of take a map and put it on satellite and scroll out, you can easily see where Dale Pendle positions this great bay in the state. It's quite clear. And he even draws out maps as time goes on for how California changes and looks geographically. So I want to read you a passage from it because... It's certainly been one of the only things that I can think of during this period of time. And I think, although quote-unquote apocalyptic, I think it's important to think about these things in terms of what might happen and what the future might look like. And are we and are we not prepared for any outcome? And what is our responsibility in preparing for it? The White Death, from Janet Conway's doomsday book. Compiled between 2081 and 2093. Archives of the Scholars Guild, Berkeley. According to Michelle Marks, whose father was a government scientist, there were three different diseases involved in the pandemic. Two of them were engineered, created as weapons. The Americans developed the smallpox. They didn't realize that the vaccinated troops, though asymptomatic, were infectious carriers. The influenza was probably Chinese. No one was sure how they ever thought they could contain such a mutable virus. According to Michelle's father, both sides were desperate. Michelle Marx said while the genomic sequence of the smallpox was certainly a military creation, her father never believed it was the army that actually released the virus. According to Marks' father, biohackers in the United States had stolen the code and sequenced their own virus— which they were planning to use to blackmail the army to stop using nuclear weapons in the war. The government was ready to negotiate with them, too, but the hackers had been careless, and the bug was already out. The first cases, according to Mr. Marks, had actually been in the United States, in Georgia. But they had been kept so secret that when the disease broke out at the front and crossed over to the Chinese, the Chinese had assumed it was an attack, and had retaliated, even though they knew their own influenza weapon wasn't safe. It is difficult for us to imagine what life was like before the collapse, though the ruins of that culture surround us. Though our world today seems brimming full of people, the population before the White Death, by estimations, was 50 to 100 times what it is today. One might wonder where there was room for so many people, and how there was enough food for them to eat. Indeed, we might call it the hydrocarbon culture, or the oil culture. Unimaginable quantities of coal and oil and gas were mined and burned. It was as if they were burning all of the forests in the entire country every four or five years, and doing this decade after decade. The hydrocarbon fires fueled giant machines, and these had to be tended by armies of workers. The oil people created huge farms, covering whole counties and states, and forced food out of the ground by mixing explosives into the soil. In effect, the whole earth exploded. In just three or four generations, they brought the earth's savings of 300 million years up out of the ground and into the air where it was oxidized. The Great Conflagration affected every part of the globe and everything that lived on it. Corporatism from Janet Conway's Doomsday Book. Almost everything pre collapse society was owned or controlled by corporations, entities created with the sole purpose of amassing wealth and power. They used the governments to protect and enrich themselves. Corporation culture was like a slave society, where everything was owned. Ownership, in fact, was encouraged. Machines were owned. The land itself was owned. Everything was based on money. This money was not at all like our own script. Money in the corporation culture was a huge oligarchic industry. The industry printed it and controlled it. They sold money, and they rented money, and money inevitably collected and concentrated, like leaves in an eddy in a stream. We might wonder why everyone agreed to value money, why they continued to sell themselves for it, and even to steal, fight, and die for it. This is perhaps what is most difficult for us to understand. Evidently, it was just impossible to get along without it. By inflicting hardship and starvation on those without money, those who had it were able to maintain its value. Physical torture was used when fear alone was insufficient. Groups who tried to opt out of the system were suppressed by armies. The system developed a life of its own a whirlpool that consumed more and more of the resources around it. Money was a fire itself. All food, production, machines, and services were controlled by corporations. The whole purpose of a corporation was to accumulate more. We could say that they worshipped a god of hoarding, and that therefore hoarding was considered a virtue and a behavior to be emulated. As to why those who hoarded were esteemed beyond those who worked to provide for their communities, there is much to be said. If one of our children were to act out in this way, trying to grab all the food and the toys for himself, he would be chastised. With a society based on such behavior, I believe the collapse was inevitable, even without the pandemic. And so what of this? The connections of humans to the planet? The influence of the weather on our mood, or the stars on our behavior. And then, of course, the undeniable influence we have on the planet. The relationship clearly goes both ways. And I know I haven't talked about astrology a lot yet on the show, but I plan to. And the next episode that I am releasing, actually the next two episodes, are going to be astrological in nature. So I hope you guys are excited about that. But I've been thinking a lot about Venus, going back to this whole way that we are affected by things and influenced by things outside of us. And I'm thinking about Venus because for the past 40 days, Venus has been retrograde. And when a planet goes retrograde, unlike popular opinion, it's not misfiring or fucking up. It's on a quest to discover its true nature, perhaps. To reveal to us a secret. When a planet's retrograde, it means that it's passing us in the sky, so it appears to be moving backwards. But this effect only occurs because the planet is so close to us. And so if it's so close, it's not doing something wrong. It's maybe trying to show us something that we don't normally see. And so this past Venus retrograde has been in the sign of Signs of Scorpio and Libra. And so a lot of this speaks to relationship. And Venus in general speaks to our core needs. What we need to feel safe. And at home. And I have a certain type of relationship to Venus in my own chart. Because I've got an asteroid called Chiron there. And so Chiron is a, is a wounding of sorts. And there's a wounding for me around home and around safety and security and nurturance. And this is for many reasons. Um, But it's always something I've struggled with. And I actually made a commitment this year that I, I really wanted to learn more about my Venus and my moon as well, as the moon also speaks to safety and security. And it's astonishing to me how wonderfully unexpected these astrological lessons can be and the lessons that we can learn when we just open our eyes or our ears and pay attention to this relationship between us and the cosmos, whether that be through weather or astrological transits. And so, of course, when Venus initially went retrograde 40 days ago, I had no idea that any of this would happen, but it's been impossible to ignore insights and thoughts around the nature of home. And I, I even recorded a, a patron-only podcast, which hopefully you're a patron and listen to it. But if you're not, go to patreon.com slash to learn more. Had to get that promo in there. But I recorded a whole episode about this, about home and community and about my upcoming move to Colorado. And so this was, I recorded that episode, I believe a day before I was evacuated from my house. And I think not just about me and my own personal experience, but I also think of everyone else who has evacuated, who has evacuated, who lost their homes. We've all had to think about this. We've all had to contemplate Venus, even if we weren't aware of it. What are our core needs? What is it that we need to take with us if our house burns down? What is it that matters most? Are our things the most valuable? Our lives? The lives of our loved ones? And if these things that we have and we own aren't important, why do we have them? And this goes back to the choices we're making and our participation in our own reality. And there's another shocking story that I heard during all of this on the news. I haven't checked the sources on this, so forgive me if I'm inaccurate, but I did hear this from the radio and obviously everything on the radio, like the internet, is real. But so I heard on the radio that apparently the past 11 of 16 extreme, or maybe just in general, wildfires in California were caused by faulty utility equipment. So the winds blow, the power lines get caught in some branches, sparks fly, fire starts, and the wind carries the fire. And that's what they believe happened in this situation in Southern California, and I believe what they've found happened in Northern California as well. But the problem is that the utility companies are basically bankrupt and funded by the government, which is funded by our tax dollars. And so like the banks, when they had to be bailed out, when something like this happens, the utility companies have to be bailed out. And because the government doesn't just have an endless amount of money— to help in these situations, what ends up happening is that the taxpayers pay for it. So if you just take a step back from that and think big picture, what's basically happening is that we are paying the government to burn down our land. So the people whose land was burned now have to pay the utility companies higher costs through their bills in order to bail them out for the fire that they originally caused that burned down their property. And what to do about that? We are stuck in that cycle. (laughs) And talk about, you know, dependence on resources. We are so dependent on the utility companies to give us power that we have no choice but to support gross negligence across the board. And I don't have the answers to these questions, right? Are we all supposed to just throw our hands up and go out into the woods and live off the grid? Like, I recognize that that's not super plausible. But there's got to be something (laughs) that we can do. There's got to be a way for us to somehow opt out of these systems and think more critically about what participation we have in creating the types of circumstances that Dale Pendle so brilliantly describes in his book. And it wouldn't be that unlikely, and forgive me for getting political, but I'm going to get political for a moment. It wouldn't be that unlikely, and of course this is astrologically sound as well, that sometimes in the, sometime in the next couple of years that Trump will, will feel extremely threatened by the investigation or who knows what, what's going to go on. But I think he's proven to be the type of person that would do almost anything to protect his reputation. Even if that meant starting or threatening nuclear war to def- to deflect from an impending investigation. Don't you think? Don't you think that he could do something like that? I think it's pretty possible. And the vast majority of the people that I've spoken to about this feel that it's pretty possible as well. And so would it be... So far-fetched that in the threat or, or, God forbid, start of nuclear war, that someone does something stupid, probably a liberal asshole, releases some sort of biological warfare in order for to, to prevent nuclear warfare that ends up wiping out two-thirds of the population, causing there to be no presidential election, to be no government, to be no resources, it seems kind of likely. It seems likely when you look at the facts. It seems likely when you touch in with your intuition. At least it does for me. And so it's an interesting question, personally and collectively. The nature of safety and security. And the extent to which we have a responsibility to prepare, prevent, to act proactively. And so personally, what I've been grappling with is that during the situation of me having to abandon my home and survive, and there have been some other personal situations that have occurred around these same themes, what do you do in a situation like this, in a dangerous situation, in a in a situation where you need to survive or protect people or protect yourself? And it's been quite clear to me during this and other events in my life that clearly I have been surviving and escaping, and fighting, and taking the bullet for others for lifetimes. And there's a lot of this that actually feels a lot more natural and normal to me than living my normal life in my house, and being safe, and taking baths, and (laughs) feeding myself. This feels more normal. And that's a lot of my trauma talking, because I didn't have a stable childhood. And so what actually feels comfortable is instability. And there's part of my unconscious mind that craves that and that thrives during that. And I know that there's part of that experience for me that led me to be someone that is brave and courageous and so great. We need those people in the world, no doubt. But I don't want to take that overboard. I don't want to use that in some sort of spiritual bypassing way to say well, I'm super brave and so I'm going to continually put myself in situations in which I have to be brave and continually take part in creating unstable circumstances for myself in which I need to feel unsafe and as if I need to protect myself or survive. So how do I utilize the skill that I learned as it relates to bravery and survival in a positive, healthy way? And how can I take the lessons of this venus retrograde in thinking about safety you know i it's quite likely that they will let us back into topanga tomorrow which of course because of course it would happen like this is the day that venus goes direct and the symbolism of all of these people repopulating homes that they have not been in for now a week on the day she goes direct direct It feels like an opportunity for me. And there was a lot of times during this week where I thought, I don't want to go back to that house. I don't feel safe there. And all of this was some sort of message and foreshadowing for me to prepare for the worst and to prepare for the apocalypse and to prepare for biological warfare. And I need to get to Colorado and I need to dig ditches and I need to... Prepare for the apocalypse, basically, and like become a crazy prepper. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of that that's going to happen. And I feel really strongly that I am unprepared for anything like that. And I definitely want to think more about how I can educate and train myself to be less reliant on resources if that had to happen. But I'm moving basically back into my home tomorrow and I've got to take all of my valuables, belongings and all of the things that mean something to me and walk them up my stairs and into my house and reconstruct my altar with all of my crystals, you know, and put meaningful photographs back in their rightful place and put the books back on my shelf. And it seems like an opportunity for me personally To create and be very intentional about the safety and security that I deserve, even if I can't control the weather, and even if I'm moving again in the fall and may move after that, and even if something terrible may happen. I mean, who knows? I could move all my things back into my house, and a week from now there could be a fire right outside my front door, and I wouldn't even have the time to pack up my car and go. Right? We really can't control any of those things. And, and is there a higher chance of wildfire in California, where I live now, than in Colorado, where I'm moving? Maybe. But what am I going to do? Am I going to live in fear and the constant dread of what's to come? Or can I somehow do both? Can I somehow utilize my capacity to behave well in situations of crisis, but also not sabotage myself and not prevent myself for attaining any sort of safety and security. And so there's a delicate balance between this co-creation that we're all involved with in terms of surrendering and taking action, in terms of stepping forward, but also stepping back, in terms of standing up for what's right, but also not trying to control or be a savior in a situation, in speaking our minds and expressing our feelings without trying to change somebody. These things are full of nuance and full of paradox. And that's really how I started this podcast, was talking about my fascination with nuance. And I don't think it's possible to fully know what the universe is trying to tell us in these situations. But I think it's multifaceted. And I think it's always important to ask ourselves critical questions and to not settle when an answer seems easy or simple, because if it is, it's probably not the right answer. And so tomorrow, as Venus goes direct, and I think about all that I've learned in the past 40 days about relationships, about boundaries, about interpersonal dynamics about friendship, about love and romance. We all have an opportunity to set a new intention and to dedicate to new behaviors and to make promises to ourselves around the ways that we're going to grow and learn. And so I think I could have gone back to my house tomorrow and done a few different things. I could... Well, I could just not go back at all, and I could leave, and I could live in fear and run away. I could go back and and totally ignore the risk and not really think critically about what lessons I was being asked to learn in terms of preparedness and dependence on resources and my participation in all of these dynamics, personally and collectively. And I could just say... I deserve safety and I'm going to ignore all of that and anything about my ability to be brave and courageous and plan and influence and inspire, I should just put that aside because it's all my trauma speaking. Or the third option is to try and be very Libra in it all and see both sides and integrate both sides and not choose one or the other, to learn lessons about both, to honor myself my bravery, my capacity to survive in a crisis, but also nurture the need that I have and that everyone has for safety and security. And how to have both. And how to exist without attachment, but also with it. And that might sound relatively esoteric and philosophical, but... These are the types of things that fill my mind on a daily basis. And so on the episodes coming up, we're going to be talking a lot about astrology and this relatively undefinable connection between us and the cosmos. And so if you're unfamiliar with astrology or skeptical of astrology, I encourage you to have an open mind to think about Joan Didion's passages about the wind And to think about the undeniable connection that we have to the planet and the ways that we affect it and the ways that it affects us. And perhaps contemplate over the past 40 days what you have learned about safety, security, about relationships, about what you deserve and don't deserve, about what patterns you'd like to continue or patterns you'd like to break as it relates to the people and things that we love. Did you think about what matters? Did you think about what you hold dear? Did you think about what you push away? Venus gives us an opportunity as she goes direct to set a new intention and to write a new story. And so what is the new story that you are writing about home, about friends, about community, about love, What is it that you're prioritizing? So I hope this episode wasn't too rambly. But I did just kind of want to get my thoughts out into the airwaves, especially before I know what's going to happen and if I go home tomorrow or not. So you'll have to tune in next week to see if I do, in fact, make it back to Topanga. But I encourage you to do research around how to support those who are truly in need during this time, um, the fires have really devastated communities. Um, And I know that I've heard that a lot of people are asking for physical donations like water bottles. And um, I don't think they're asking for water bottles. I don't know what they're asking for. Plastic baggies I saw and all sorts of like actual material goods, which I actually heard they are too overwhelmed with. So the best way is to potentially send money to the Red Cross Um, to really get in contact with the um, fire departments in California and ask what they actually need because I know they're being overrun by items, which is fascinating talking about what we do and do not need, right? Like sending cartons and cartons of supplies that aren't needed. Let's just make sure that we're sending and supporting the right avenues. So I really encourage you to do that. Um, I hope this episode was valuable in some way, if not slightly random, (laughs) You'll have to let me know if you like this sort of thing because I do feel like I have a lot to say and a lot of people to interview. So I'd love to put more content out, but for the in the meantime, I might just do it more casually and not set a schedule, but we'll see. And if you guys haven't checked out Patreon, I really encourage you to do so. I have thought about all different sorts of ideas for perks that I'd lo- like to offer, but at the moment... You can join for as low as five dollars a month and get access to solo episodes and um, weekly columns of inspiration and some things that I'll post on the patron-only feed. And so many of you have joined already, and I'm so blown away and appreciate um, and appreciative of your support. I really thought this would take a really, really long time to build, and it probably will if it if it's going to be anywhere near something that is monetarily sustaining for me. Um, but I'm so freaking thankful for I think eleven of you have signed up as um as a supporter so far and I'm just blown away. Um and it's partially why I want to release more content for you and 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 be um you know, have develop a routine around it so you guys know what's coming. So if you have any ideas for perks on Patreon that you'd like to see, I had the idea tonight of potentially doing worksheets around different, like, astrological or philosophical or psychological topics. I had written a big Instagram story about um, different examples of spiritual bypassing, and of course after writing it, already thought of, like, eight different other things I want to say about it, so I thought it might be cool on a monthly basis to put together some sort of, like, worksheet or FAQ or 101 on... Um, things like spiritual bypassing or psychological projection or planetary retrogrades um so if you follow me on instagram um let me know or email me If you follow me on patreon send me a message i would love to know how to make that platform more valuable for you guys so if there's something that i provide just through instagram or elsewhere that you think is cool um let me know and maybe i can turn it into something more formal to offer for patrons so patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash AnyaKates, N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S. Thank you so much to everyone has donated. If you like the show, please subscribe on iTunes, leave a review and some stars. That's super helpful in helping the podcast show up in search results. Really anything you can do. If you can't support me on Patreon, I understand. But again, leaving some stars or a review would help a lot. So until next time, we're going to have two episodes about astrology. They're already recorded. I'm really excited to bring them to you guys. And before I go, I am going to play you a song called Loving the Small Time by Kara's Flowers. And for those of you that don't know, before Maroon 5 was Maroon 5, they were a pop punk band in the late 90s called Kara's Flowers. They have some pretty awesome songs. So I couldn't quite think of a better type of music than loud, angry, teenage punk music to play during this apocalyptic week, and the songs certainly fit the bill, although more on the poppy side, and with a lot of harmonies, but it's the way it should be. And the song that I played at the beginning of the episode to coincide with Joan Didion's words was a song called Lustin by Dead Men Winter, and I will always include the names of these songs in the show notes in case you miss it or forget. Or I forget to mention it. But this is Loving the Small Time by Carrots Flowers, and I think it is a great song of both despair and optimism. And I've definitely been dancing my ass off in my hotel room over the past week to this and hoping to create the best future that I can, given the circumstances. So enjoy. See you guys next time.
1: Say bye-bye yeah.